Our text this morning will be in Genesis chapter 14. During World War II, the Geneva Convention allowed allied POWs to receive gifts from home. Some of the most popular gifts were board games and decks of cards. And one of the most popular board games was Monopoly, especially the Monopoly games sent to them by the British government. The reason these gifts were so popular was because hidden in the box were tools for escape. There were real banknotes mixed in amongst the Monopoly money. And concealed inside the box were compasses, metal files, and a silk map so it wouldn't be affected by the elements. It worked. From what I understand by history, there were soldiers that did escape. There were decks of playing cards also. The decks contained special cards that when soaked in water revealed hidden maps, routes that the POWs could use for their escapes. Hidden in these games were the keys to freedom. And hidden in our text this morning is one of the most important keys to our freedom that we can read from the Old Testament. But first, a little background. Abraham and his family had been living down near the Dead Sea. You know, you, you always like certain names. My daughter moved from Duddington, Duddington, to Bold Lion. We like that. You know, sometimes you like that name that you live on. There were five major cities in the area that he lived. The Dead Sea. <laughs> there was Sodom and Gomorrah, two of the main cities. These cities were a part. They were part of that powerful kingdom of Elam, to whom they were obligated to pay tribute. Apparently, they decided they didn't like that arrangement any longer, and they began to rebel. Now, the king of Elam, he didn't like that, of course. So he led a massive army down from the north and devastated Sodom and Gomorrah, raiding their cities and carrying away plunder and captives, including Lot and his family. When Abram heard about this, and that how did this had happened, he led his own personal army of about 318 men against the northern king. And he rescued all the captives, including Lot and his family. And he brought back all the goods that had plundered. So remember, he now has goods with him, Abraham. What I found interesting about our story today was that as Abraham is making his way back home, we're told in Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17, the king of Sodom, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shavev. And Melchizedek, 
king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, or Abram, by God most high, professor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth or a tithe of everything. Do you notice that the king of Sodom comes out to meet Abram first? But it's like Abraham ignores him and gives all his attention to the king of Salem, this man named Melchizedek. And it seems that even Melchizedek ignores the king of Sodom. Not that the king of Sodom was worth their attention by any means. Sodom was one of the wickedest cities that ever existed. And apparently neither Abram nor Melchizedek thought it was worth their attention. But in the, this part of the story, Melchizedek is front and center. He not only gets Abraham's attention, but as it says, he gets a tenth of all plunder Abram rescued. Long ago, I learned that if Bible mentions something, it's there for a reason. I think we've learned that. We can prove that in John, at the end of the Gospel of John, when it says, these are just, basically, they're saying, these are just a few of the things that are written so that you may understand God's will and believe. There were many more things that could have been recorded, but the whole world couldn't contain that. In fact, Romans 4, or 15 and 4, Romans 15 and 4 tells us that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope. That would include this story about Melchizedek. But wait a minute. I don't think this makes any sense, does it? Think about this for a moment. Genesis only gives Melchizedek three verses. And that's the only time he's mentioned in Genesis. The three we just read. In fact, in all the rest of the Old Testament, Melchizedek is only mentioned in one other verse. And even when you get to the New Testament, the name Melchizedek is never mentioned in the Gospels. It's not mentioned in the book of Acts or in any of the epistles that Paul wrote, nor the writings of John or Peter. It's like the guy who disappeared from history. It's like nobody paid him any attention. Hence, the title of my sermon this morning is Hidden, Hidden, But Not Forgotten. Well, I have to say that's not entirely true. There's one New Testament book that dedicates not just three verses, but in three entire chapters to Melchizedek. And in those three chapters of that one New Testament book, 
This Old Testament king and priest becomes one of the most important men of all Bible history. He's hidden away everywhere else in the Bible, but not in this book. I'd like to now refer you to Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews 7, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the high, or most high God, who met Abram, Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to him whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest forever. Now, don't get me wrong, Melchizedek was not Jesus. Verse 3 says he was resembling, though, the Son of God. It's kind of like that driver's license you have in your wallet. Everybody hates it. It's not usually a perfect resemblance of us. But it's good enough that if a policeman pulls us over, or if we show it as ID, the people can tell it's you. It's not a perfect picture, but it's close. It's a resemblance. But when God took a snapshot of Melchizedek, it was a perfect picture. It perfectly resembled who Christ was going to be. A resemblance. Not exactly. A strong resemblance. A for, foreshadowing, as they say. Foretelling of what was going to come. Now remember, there's only three verses in Genesis that describes Melchizedek. And that's deliberate. Because all that God wanted you to know about Jesus, I believe, is wrapped up in those three verses. For example, his name was Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. And in Romans 3 and 22, we're told this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus. Righteousness comes through faith in Jesus. In addition, in, in addition Melchizedek was king of Salem, which means king of peace. And in Romans 5 and 1, Romans 5 1 says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was our king of righteousness and our king of peace. And when God introduced Melchizedek, he deliberately left out who his parents were. We're told this was because that declared that this king had neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. In fact, the other verse, Psalms. 110 and verse 4. 
In the book of Psalms 110, verse 4, God makes that declaration about the coming Messiah. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what we find is that God declared that when Jesus came, he, referring to Jesus, would be our peace and our righteousness, and that he would be our priest forever. A priest. A priest? Why would Jesus need to be our priest? I mean, I can understand him being our king, and I can appreciate that he would rule over our lives. But why would Jesus need to be a priest? Well, you ask the question, what does a priest do? In the Old Testament, a priest would make sacrifices so that the sins could be forgiven. And the Bible repeatedly teaches us that the guilt or shame of our sins had to be paid for and that something or someone had to die to pay for sins. So as our priest, Jesus made a sacrifice for all, for each and every one of us. But when did he do that, you might ask? Obviously, he did that when he died on the cross. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And from that time, is waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. When Jesus died for you and I, his one sacrifice wiped away all of our sins for all time. For those who believed on his name, repented of their sins, and were buried in a watery grave for the forgiveness of their sins. You see, that's what the church is all about. We haven't gathered here just to be a social club, but don't get me wrong, as you hear before our services begin, we do socialize. Afterwards, we do socialize. We don't gather together just to slap each other on the back, give a high five, sing a few songs, listen to an encouraging message, and then go out and eat some potluck food together. We are here at church services because Jesus died for our sins. We remember that every time that we take communion, we take the bread. We take of that bread that Jesus himself had said when offering it to his disciples years ago. This is my body that is broken 
for you. And then we take the cup. And Jesus said, when referring to the cup, that this is my blood that is poured out for you. We gather every Sunday, remember, his high priestly sacrifice in these communion elements. It's what we do, and it's what, and, and it's what, and, and sorry, it's what we do, and it's who we are. And that's not the only thing we do to remember his sacrifice. Every time we baptize someone in the Christ, as we read in Romans 6, verses 3, 5, and 6, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We see, we personally see his sacrifice in the Lord's Supper and in our salvation, the action of baptism, his sacrifice, that is what this is all about. And if we ever forget that this is our primary purpose in teaching, we have nothing to offer this world. We realize that Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the one who died for us. And because that is true, he gives us confidence that now that our sins are removed, we can boldly go into the presence of God. We can only do that through the power of the blood that has removed our sins. And without fear, we can go before God without fear, without shame, and without guilt. In God's presence, we now simply have peace. Now, I want to go back to Genesis 14. Do you remember me saying that Melchizedek ignored the king of Sodom? Why would he do that? Well, he did that because our king of righteousness, our king of peace, our high priest wants nothing to do with sin. Sodom was the wickedest city on the face of the earth. And it and its king were ultimately destroyed because of their wickedness. So Melchizedek had nothing to do with the king of Sodom. But while Melchizedek didn't focus on the king of Sodom, he did focus on someone, and he did bless that someone. Remember, who did Melchizedek bless? He blessed Abraham. Going again back to Genesis 14, looking at verse 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. Now, why would he do that? Well, he did that because Abraham believed in God, because Abraham followed God, and because Abraham gave his life to God. And you can see that in what happens when Abraham meets Melchizedek. An old preacher made this observation about this. He said that when Abraham saw Melchizedek, he was looking at Christ because Melchizedek resembled Christ. So notice that when Abraham saw Christ that day, two things happened. One, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That was how Abraham worshiped God that day. And that's how we should be worshiping Jesus. If we really see Jesus, if we're really seeing the face of Christ, that should compel us to do something. It should compel us to make sure that we take communion every Sunday. And it should compel us to make sure we give back to the Lord every Sunday. One last observation. The church is the one place that we know we are going to see Jesus. I'd like to read from Ephesians 5 and 25. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wait a minute. You mean Jesus died for this church building? Of course not. He died for what? The group of people for us as an assembly body of Christ that makes up his church. Because you and I are the church. Granted, he died for your own personal sins. But he also loved each and every one of us as a group. And he died to establish this church that we make up as a body assembly of Christ. Each and every one of us. What's intriguing is how the church is described in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 22 and 23, which says, Jesus is the head over all things to the church, which is his body. So we are the body of Christ. Hmm. We are the body of Christ. I'm going to say that again. I have to really think about that. God is saying to me, if I'm a Christian, that I, with you, are the body of Christ. So work with me here. So when I see the church, when I meet with each and every one of you, whether it be during Bible study, whether it be during worship services, 
I'm seeing the body of Christ. When I see the church, I'm seeing Christ. How many times do people say it's Christ working through me? Because that is true. It's only when we gather together. Now, I have to admit that we have the convenience of Zoom. And when I'm with my daughter, I've had that luxury of being able to hear the sermons and the, the kind of worshiping with you. But how much more when I gather in person with you, when I fellowship with you, when I realize the assistance that we have one for another, the encouragement we have one for another. It's only when we gather as a church that I really, really see Jesus. I can sit at home. I can turn on the TV, as some say that we can, and listen to any various preacher, preacher message. And some of them are out there very convincing. Some of them are very easy to listen to. And I can turn on a radio to a religious radio program and listen to the uplifting songs of praise. I have to admit, on my car radio, if you go out there, it's fish. I do like to listen to fish radio. It's, you know, I know that it's not the yelling and screaming and, and all the other controversial stuff in the world. That doesn't mean I agree with everything that goes on, but there are uplifting songs. But, and I can listen to these, and I can turn everything off and offer up prayers to Christ. I can mind my own business and do all this. And I can do all this at home, some people would say. But the one thing I can't do at home is see the body of Christ, which is you. It is here that I experience truly the body of Christ. So I'd like to close with this thought. A preacher shared a story about a woman in his church who had gone to the doctor because she had a spot on her head that was irritating her. He looked it over and noted that there was a small spot on her head. And he told her, the minister, preacher, told her there was nothing to worry about. But then he looked again in a month. And then at the next appointment, the spot had grown dramatically. The doctor confirmed that it was melanoma. It was serious enough that he scheduled surgery and removed not only the skin of her head, but he had to remove part of her skull. In addition, they inserted blue dye into her veins at the affected area to see how far the cancer may have gone into her lymph nodes. As they pumped the blue dye into her system, she immediately began to feel pain. The doctor tried to comfort her at best he could and explained that the dye had to do its work and that there was no way to relieve that pain. But many had found it helpful, the doctor tells her, many say that it is helpful to find your individual happy place. Think about the things that make you feel safe relaxed and at peace. He says, that's how often people deal with pain. They think about a place or a time that they look forward to or that makes them happy. Knowing how much the woman loved riding horses, the preacher remarked, well, I guess 
When the doctor told you that, your happy place, you referred to, you went back to the times that you rode horses and spent all that time with the horses in the field. She immediately said, oh no. The first thing I thought of was the church. The church is my happy place. I began to focus on the faces of the people at church. I started on the right side of the building and I remembered each of their faces and prayed for each and every one of them, thanking God that they, had, that they were my friends and that I knew they were praying for me. And then I focused on the songs we sing and I'm thankful that they encouraged me to praise and worship God. And then I focused on the word of God presented through sermons and Bible study. And then after spending much time on all of that, then I thought about my horses. Church was her happy place. Why? Why was the church her happy place? Well, it was her happy place because that, when she looked out into all the many faces, looked on the faces of the people of the church and as she did so, she saw Jesus. That is what I would like to compel you with today. As we look at one another, as we encourage each other, you read in the book of Acts that when they sang songs of praise together, they went daily encouraging, singing, and fellowshipping together, thinking of Jesus. And think about that critical time. They had just put Jesus to death. And from what I understand in books, you read Acts 2. Who are those people saying to Peter, what man and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? There are many individuals in that crowd that were the ones saying, crucify him, crucify him. And now they realize their mistake. They had to go around realizing they, some of them were actually part of that crowd, the peer pressure that crucified Jesus. But then they had the opportunity to sing songs of praise unto God. They had songs, they realized as they broke bread together that they encouraged one another. Today, you can become part of that body of Christ that Jesus has established and died for. We know that we need to <laughs> repent, confess, and be baptized to walk in newness of life. Or if you have the need to come forward to ask for the prayers of the congregation, whatever your need is, you have the opportunity to come forward and make it right as together we stand and sing our song of invitation. <laughs>